Welcome to Trevecca Community Church's Sermon Podcast Series. Each week we'll be streaming our sermon from within the sanctuary just for you. Greetings, family. My name is Matt. I am a sinner saved by grace. Today is step five. Admit to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Let's read together James 5, 13 through 20. Are any among you suffering? They should pray. Are any cheerful? They should sing songs of praise. Are any among you sick? They should call for the elders of the church and have them pray over them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise them up. And anyone who has committed sins will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of righteousness is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human like us, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth yielded its harvest. My brothers and sisters, if any among you wanders from the truth and is brought back by another, you should know that whoever brings back a sinner from wandering will save the sinner's soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thanks, Matt. True or false? You ready? This is a quote that Pastor Jeremy shared with us earlier this week from one of his professors, Mark Quanstrom. True or false? We get to hell all by ourselves. We get to heaven in community. A few of you are quick to respond. All right. Think about it. You you don't have to raise your hands, true or false, but I'm just going to take a moment. Like, You think it's true? Anybody say, I don't know. I'm not so sure. Amen. (laughs) Spoken like someone who knows the journey. Yeah. Yeah. We get to hell all by ourselves. We get to heaven in community. Think about that. This picture that we find in the book of James that Matt just read for us. This is the picture of the early Christian church as a healing community where those who are suffering pray together and those who are cheerful, they sing together and those who are sick, well, they're cared for medically with anointing of oil, which would have been the first thing a doctor would have used for somebody that was sick, but then also spiritually where the elders come and gather around, lay hands and pray over them 
And as surely as Elijah prayed for rain, they experienced the presence of God. And then those who have sinned can confess and receive forgiveness. This is a healing community. In fact, it's a resurrection community. You might have noticed the phrase where it said that if anyone is sick, that they should lay hands on them and the Lord will raise them up. Well, the root of the Greek verb that's used there is the same root word for the word resurrection. In other words, it's saying that this is a part of what the resurrected family of God looks like in Christian community. And I'll tell you, if you're going to be able to find a group of people with whom you can admit the exact nature of your wrongs to God, to yourself, and to others, you want to find a community like this one. A community that is a healing community because step five cannot be done alone. I think it's probably fair to say none of the steps really can be done alone. But, but step five, uh, which we'll get to in just a minute, cannot be done alone. If you've been with us, we've been on this journey through the 12 steps of recovery. And we've been looking at this as a mirror of the journey of sanctification that, that God invites us into. Where we're renewed in the image of God and made whole. And so we've been through this for the last four weeks. Step one, we admitted that we were powerless. So back to step one, we admitted that we were powerless over sin and that our lives had become unmanageable, right? We talked about admitting that powerlessness and, and looking for the true manager who is God. And then in step two, we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity, recognizing that we need, we have this desperate desire for God to do what only God can do. And then step three, we made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood God. And if you've been around the church for a while, we talk about this as surrender. And so we talked about this step of surrendering, turning our lives and our will over to the care, trusting that God will care for us. And then last week, Pastor Jeremy preached on step four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves, where he invited us to walk into the valley, the dark valley of the shadow of death, trusting that even in those places, searching out the darkest places of our soul, God would be our, our good shepherd. Pastor Jeremy teased me a little bit last week about how this was the step I least wanted to preach, and so I made Pastor Jeremy preach it. But I will just say, Pastor Jeremy, wherever you are, at least I did not ask you to preach on admitting the exact nature of your wrongs on Mother's Day, all right? So I think it's a fair trade. <laughs> I think we're doing all right. So finally, then, only after we've made this searching and fearless moral inventory, doing that deep work in the dark side of our own soul, that we get then to step five. Admit to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. You notice that there's three different folks mentioned there. God, nature, another human being, God, self, and others. There, there is this web of relationships that is inherent in this step because this is the web of relationships that we were created to need. In fact, having all of those restored looks a lot like wholeness in Christ, but sin is the disintegrating force that destroys all three of those relationships. Sin is the force that breaks down our relationship and estranges us even from our own self. It estranges us from God and estranges us from one another. All three of those are broken and disintegrated in sin. And we can't heal what we can't confess. 
And so the healing begins by confessing in the same community, God, self, and others. We confess in the same community that sin has broken. That's good. That's what healing looks like. But the hard part is, the trouble in that is, a lot of our wounds often also come from community. Jack Boughton is one of my favorite characters in modern literature. He's a character that I have a love-hate relationship with. Jack Boughton is the youngest son of a minister in Gilead, Iowa, a fictional town created by Marilyn Robinson, a novelist who brings these characters in this place to life in her novels, Gilead, Home, and her last novel is called Jack. For perhaps the three Marilyn Robinson fans that we have in the house today. Uh, I'm just going to tell you right now, I'm halfway through the novel, Jack. Uh, So please do not spoil it for me. I I admitted to you a few weeks ago the rage that came over me when I had to return my son's backpack. Do you remember that? Anybody who's here? Like, you do not want to see the rage of experiencing somebody spoiling the end of a novel. So I'll just say that I have not finished Jack yet. Please don't spoil it for me. I'm halfway through. But I've gotten to know this character throughout all of her novels, and I just, he's one of these characters that you love to hate. Jack is his own worst enemy in every way. He is this kid who is the pastor's son of a big family. All of the other siblings seem to have no problem playing the part that they're supposed to play, being the good preacher's kid in a small town. But Jack, the youngest kid, one of the the youngest boys at least, he just cannot seem to figure this out. He's the black sheep of the family from an early age. He steals and lies and manipulates. He hurts people. But his father, the minister, seems to turn a blind eye to Jack's behavior. And the whole town is frustrated about this because they can all see what a mess Jack is. But Jack's dad seems to have this tender spot in his heart for Jack. Jack hurts a lot of people in this little town constantly the one who's always in trouble, who's always suspected. Finally, the last straw is when Jack gets a young girl pregnant, a young girl who has no means to care for herself, let alone to care for a baby. And then after all of that, Jack runs off and leaves them, abandons this girl and her expectant child to a life of destitute hardship. Jack finally returns to Gilead as a 48-year-old man. Many, many years later, and when he finally shows up, he is drunk and aimless. Every picture of the prodigal son, except for the fact that he is not ready to beg for the forgiveness that he so obviously needs to everyone else. But he comes home because he is desperate for healing He seems to sense and intuit that home is the only place he's going to find it. And so he returns home. He returns to the place where the wounds come from. You see, when I read James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, I grew up in the church and I've heard these verses a lot of times. These verses that talk about whoever turns a sinner... Right? Whoever can turn a sinner from the error of their ways or who brings a sinner back from wandering. I know that the verse that I memorized when I was really little. Whoever turns a sinner back from the error of their ways, turns them back from their wandering. 
Well, it's easy for me when I look at these verses, I imagine someone like Jack. I imagine somebody like Jack, this prodigal drunk womanizer who's run off from home and finally returns because some self-righteous good church preacher, maybe even somebody like myself, finally grabbed Jack by the scruff of the collar and said, knock it off, (laughs) right? Like that's kind of what I imagine about turning a sinner from their wandering, turning a sinner from the error of their ways, right? I imagine Jack and somebody like me or a Sunday school teacher, someone who's actually got it all together, getting Jack back onto the straight and narrow. But when you look closely at the whole passage that was read, you'll notice that James talks about the forgiveness of sins in the same breath that he talks about the healing of sickness. Did you notice that? Did you see it? In fact, it's even in one verse where I think you're supposed to read it without even taking a breath before talking about healing sickness and forgiving sins. That it's all a part of this healing community. Bible scholar Jeannie Sorrell puts it like this. She says that for James, in the book of James, the passage we read, healing was not about the getting rid of disease. The objective was to restore the person to the community. Thus, the forgiveness of sins was an important part of the restoration of that person back to the community. You see, it's in community that we're wounded. It's in community that we wound others, and it's in that same community that we find healing that our soul desperately longs longs for. But then why would somebody like Jack even care about the community that he has rejected and that rejected him a long time ago. Why should Jack even care? We get to hell all by ourselves. But Kurt Thompson puts it like this. He says, isolation is hell. Kurt Thompson is a Christian who writes this book, The Soul of Shame, and and he studies neurobiology. He has a side of the brain functioning that I can only pray for. He studies neurobiology, and he writes this book reflecting on how he sees the story of God reflected in all that he's been reading and researching about neurobiology. Neurobiology is like the stuff that happens in the brain, the neuropathways that are created in our brain as we learn and grow and interact with other people. He's a real smart guy. And so he writes this book about how he sees the story of God and salvation and sanctification reflected in what he sees in the patterns of neuro networks, neuro pathways in our brain. I've talked about this book before. I'm sure you all have it in those copious notes that you take on all of my sermons. But just in case you need a refresher, he says that in the beginning we were created to be in communion with God ourself and others, that this is how we were created for this whole life that God has for us. Because God, God's self, is a holy community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this holy communion of love. And it's only after sin enters the picture that our relationships break down, our relationship with God, with self, and with others that it breaks those relationships. And and the relationship with God and self and others, these wedges begin to grow. And we become increasingly isolated in sin. He describes sin as a disintegrating force 
that is actively at work in the human brain and within networks of human relationships that isolates individuals and dismantles God's good creation. Part of the research that he reflects on is the human brain of a small child. They talk about looking at the brain, the neural networks in a small child, and how their brains are created to thrive in close relationships with their caregivers. And so they reach out to form new neural pathways as a means not just to learn how to walk or grab hold of a spoon or talk. They learn these things so that they can actually grow closer to these people that they love. And so little Teddy, who we got to dedicate today, as he's learning to make sounds and to smile, he's not just learning how to do those things. He's learning that when he does something like that, his mom and his dad look back at him and smile. And he loves that. And it lights up all these neural networks in his brain. And he says, oh, this is good. And he keeps doing it, right? Our brains are actually created to need love and connection to grow. Like, that's how God made us to need love and connection to grow. And this same research shows that when a person is experiencing shame, like that feeling that they've not only done something wrong, they, there's something wrong with them. That feeling that says, oh man, I am flawed. There's something wrong with me and I don't want anyone to see it. When someone is experiencing shame about something that they've done, it closes off the neural pathways that create that connectivity that allow creativity and imagination and most importantly, intimacy and connection with other human beings. And so he talks about this shame cycle that we get stuck in because we do something that then makes us feel ashamed and, and in our shame, we then turn away and close ourselves off from connecting with others, which is actually what we need to be able to grow past that, to grow past that behavior, and to learn new pathways. So we actually turn ourselves away from our source of healing. We shut down our ability to grow past that point of our life. And it essentially traps us in whatever pattern or behavior first caused the shame. We can't grow past it. And he agrees that God created us to need one another, to be like human mirrors of God's divine love to help us grow in grace. And Thompson says that the thing that we need most to break us out of this shame cycle is vulnerable community. That we need to be a part of vulnerable community, a healthy community where we can be honest and vulnerable without fear of rejection or being turned away. But being loved and accepted into that community so that we can learn to grow and mature in our faith. A healthy, vulnerable community is a place where we can admit the exact nature of our wrongs. Whew. As painful as that might sound where we can admit the exact nature of our wrongs to God and to ourself and to another human being. Friends, step five is the exit ramp from the shame cycle. It is the exit ramp that gets you out of that shame cycle so you can actually grow in wholeness in Christ. 
Richard Rohr in his book, Breathing Underwater, he puts it this way. He says that there is this ego path that we assume is the path to transformation. And, and even the one sometimes it feels like is the good Christian path to transformation, where once you've experienced sin, well, the next logical step is punishment, obviously. And then punishment should lead us to repentance, wanting to not do that again. And then finally, that leads us to transformation, where, where we're changed. And we don't want to do that anymore because we've been transformed, right? But he makes the argument that there's actually this grace path, which is what we see in Scripture. And he lays it out throughout the prophets and, and throughout Jesus' teaching in the New Testament, how the grace path that we see in Scripture is a totally different path where we experience sin, but the response instead of punishment is unconditional love, which then leads to transformation, and the transformation leads to repentance. You see, repentance is not our response to shame. Repentance is our response to already having received the grace of God. Because we can't even want the grace of God. We can't even want God's forgiveness until we've received grace. Grace has to come first. And so we admit the exact nature of our wrongs three times. Ooh, it's hard enough to do it once, let alone three times, but we admit the exact nature of our wrongs to God. Remember that God's first response to Adam and Eve in the garden is not, how could you, but where are you? When God knows that they have sinned and they have hidden themselves in shame and isolation, God comes looking. And it's not a response of how could you, but God says, my children, where are you? I want to be close to you. I want to draw near to you. Don't hide in the shame of isolation. And then second, we admit the exact nature of our wrong to ourself. It should be the easiest one, but maybe this is the hardest one. Like to look in the mirror and admit the things that we don't want to admit to. The ways that we've hurt other people and we've fallen short. To admit that. But you can't heal what you can't confess. Could you imagine looking yourself in the mirror and just being able to freely say the thing that you don't want to be true. But then to immediately say, beloved child of God. Do you think that that might be a really good healing step? And finally, the third, we admit the exact nature of our wrongs to another human being. Someone who can act as a human mirror for God's loving gaze. And this is a scary one. I'll admit it, this is a really scary step. Admitting to another human being means that we carry that fear that we'll be rejected by somebody else. If we've already felt ashamed and rejected ourselves, if we admit this to someone else and they reject us too, then we might just be lost in the hell of isolation forever. And so this is a really scary step to admit to another human being. Perhaps our greatest fear to be rejected. But when we do take that step and admit to another human being and instead of finding shame, we're looking in a mirror of God's holy, unconditional love looking back at us. It can carve out a brand new pathway. A brand new pathway not only into human community, but in the community of love of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I'm going to tell you something this morning. I don't think that 
when it says bringing a sinner back from their wandering, turning a sinner from the error of their ways, I don't think that it's talking about a self-righteous person grabbing someone by the scruff of the neck and saying, knock it off. And I'm not saying that there's not ever a time when somebody needs to get grabbed by the scruff of their neck either. I, I just don't think that that's the picture we see in James. I don't think that's the picture of this healing, resurrected community. What I think I'm seeing in James this morning is that turning a sinner back from their wandering, from the air of their ways, means opening a pathway of unconditional love back into the healing community of Christ's resurrected body where they can experience the wholeness that they are so desperately longing for, recognize that they will not be rejected and isolated in their shame forever, but there is a place for them to be made whole, to be discovered as a beloved child of God, to be seen and known and loved. That This is what it looks like to turn a sinner back from their wandering, to restore them back into the community. And what if you and I had the opportunity to be that human being? Right? Amen. To not only be that human being for somebody else, but what if you could even let somebody else be that human being for you? See, I almost don't know if, if we really can be that human being for someone else unless we're willing to let somebody else be that human being for us. In fact, when it talks about this in James, there, there's a word that's used for confessing that actually means that you need to keep confessing. This idea that the whole community needs to be confessing all the time. Jack finally comes home at 48 years old. We find out because he's fathered another child. And this time with a woman he really loves. And he wants to marry her and to take care of this child and be the father that he wasn't back as a teenager. But Jack lives in the 1960s, and the mother of this son is an African-American woman. And it's the 1960s, and Jack doesn't know if there's going to be a place where this family will be accepted and find a home. And so he goes back to his home, to this little town of Gilead, Iowa, he goes home and, and he deals with the fact that even as a small child, he never really felt at home. Not like all of his brothers and sisters did. He always felt estranged. He always felt every bit the prodigal that all the folks in that small town made him feel like. He deals with all the complexities of growing up as a minister's son and being part of this family. Jack comes back and he's got stuff to admit but he discovers that everybody else does too. And it's only in restoring these relationships and learning that his father's got stuff to admit and his perfect little sister's got stuff to admit and all the other self-righteous folks in Gilead have stuff to admit. And it's only in coming home and facing the people who first caused the wounds and the people who he's wounded that Jack can find healing to become the father that his family needs him to be now. I know Jack's a fictional character. And there's a reason I used a fictional character today, because there are plenty of Jacks, and I can't tell their stories from the pulpit. You know Jack. I know Jack. We got some Jacks here today. You know Jack's dad. You know that, Father. You know the town of Gilead. You know those kind of folks 
that made Jack feel like the prodigal. We know the people in this story all too well. This is our story. I mean, it's why it rings so true. We know this community. And we might get to hell all by ourselves, but we get there because we're running from wounds that probably came in community. We need to be a part of a confessing community. This community that keeps confessing and not just the Jacks, but the Shauna's and the Jordans and the Judy's. We need to be a part of a confessing community that keeps confessing. This is a part of what we do just as surely as anytime somebody's sick, we lay hands, or anytime somebody's cheerful, we sing songs, or when somebody's suffering, we pray for them. What if we were confessing with one another as often as we do all of those other things? Wouldn't that create the kind of community where you would feel so safe to be able to admit the exact nature of your wrong to another human being and know that you would be met with the loving, unconditional gaze of God? Wouldn't that be good? It's Mother's Day, and for some of you, this is a fun day to celebrate the person who is the bedrock of your loving family community. And for some of you, this is a day with a lot of pain because for whatever reason, there's estrangement, isolation, and brokenness in what should be a loving family community. And there are some who are here today because the church family is the only family you got. And whichever of those you are, we are so glad you are here in this resurrected family, the kind of family that only comes out of empty graves. And so we want to invite whichever one of those folks you might be to take a step today. There's a reason that these 12 steps are called steps because they require movement, doing something, taking a step. There's a reason that these are called steps and I know that this journey, this journey of sanctification can sometimes feel like it's two steps forward, four steps sideways, three cartwheels back, and a kick in the pants. I know that. It's what it feels like for me. But I'm going to invite you to take a step today. And for some of you, take a, a literal step, like out of your chair and down to an altar. For maybe four different reasons and maybe more, but, but four that we read in the book of James today. One, are you suffering? Hey, let us pray with you. Suffering for whatever the reason might be. Suffering because of joblessness. Suffering because of addiction. Suffering because of depression. Suffering because of broken relationships. Are you suffering? Let us pray with you. Are you cheerful? Do you have great news today? And you would just like to share with another human being that God has been good to you. And you just have a word of joy to share and to give God thanks. Y'all, That's a place. this is a place for that. Are you sick? Or are you carrying somebody who is? Let us anoint you. In fact, we have pastors that are going to be at the, the far altars here. The, the altars that are furthest towards the windows. If, if you'd like to come forward for any of those reasons, to be anointed for sickness, praying and suffering, singing and joy, or to confess your sins. If you need to just admit today, say something to another human being 
admit the exact nature of your wrongs and be met with someone who is like a mirror for God's loving gaze who will say to you, child, in the name of Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. And I want to promise you this morning, our pastors, they are trained in confidence and they are unshockable. I'll tell you what. <laughs> so if you'd like to find another human being who can be that for you today, where you can just admit, here's what I've done. I need to know that God will forgive me and I'm okay. I'm inviting you to take a step. Take a step out of the hell of isolation, whether you are isolated in suffering, sickness, or sin. The resurrected family of God is here for you. So if the pastors would come, if you guys would just find your places at those altars with your anointing oil, if there are any who are here to be anointed for sickness or for any other reason, suffering, sickness, or sin, the resurrected Christian community is a place where we experience healing at the deepest parts of our soul because you were created by a God who loves you and wants to restore you to wholeness in Christ. So as Pastor Jordan leads us in this song, as we just sing over and over, Lord, I need you, right? Even if you just need to stay there in your seat and let that be your confession today, Lord, I need you. Sing with us, Lord, I need you. And if you'd like to take a step, literally today. Take a step to come and to pray. If you want to pray just on your own for anything, these center altars are a place where we will just let you do that work with the Lord. But if you'd like to come and have a pastor pray for you for suffering, sin, or sickness, the Christian community is here for you today. Thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to join us on campus next week, we have discipleship classes beginning at 9 a.m. followed by service at 10.30. That service will be streamed to Facebook Live. We hope to see you there.